In May of last year, prosperity gospel televangelist Jesse Duplantis made headlines all over the country. He made an outrageous headline that read this. Duplantis wants his followers to pay for a $54 million private jet. It is his fourth plane. Let that sink in for a moment. This TV evangelist, this TV preacher, is asking his faithful adherents to dig deep into their pockets and to provide him with his obvious need, a $54 million private jet. Uh, The request alone takes courage, right? You really have to not care what people think about you. He goes on to say that if Jesus were to descend today in the 21st century, he would not be riding on the back of a donkey this time. He would be on an airplane preaching the gospel all over the world. This statement should hit our ears as strange and stupid (laughs) and completely out of touch with what Jesus came to do and who he is. Uh, In an ironic twist, there is a donkey in this story, but this time he is riding on the backs of his followers all the way to the bank. This type of thing is common today, is it not? Uh, We can see um, this almost every time we turn on a televangelist. There are many today who fleece the church for their own personal gain, whether this be Duplantis or Kenneth Copeland or the appropriately named Creflo Dollar. Teachers time and time again, these false teachers time and time again show their true colors, they show their true motivation. It is straight cash. This obsession with earthly riches and obvious greed rightly should leave a bad taste in your mouth. We read these things and we see their lifestyle and and, and we compare that to our own lives. We don't yet have our fourth jet. We don't have closets full of designer suits and $5,000 shoes. We don't live this life of luxury that we see these false teachers enjoying here on earth. And often we are reacting harshly against this. Why would we support this? This is, this is antithetical to the gospel, to the sacrificial giving and humility that we see Jesus modeling. We want nothing to do with this. In reaction to this, we are, we are tempted to fling ourselves into another ditch. Reacting to the sin that we see in these very public ministries, we are tempted to say that church leaders should not care about money at all. And we should become, we, we, we're tempted to become tight and, and, and controlling with how we compensate our pastors. We are tempted to take it upon ourselves to make sure that they don't fall into this ditch. Well, well what does the Bible have to say about this? That is the question we should be asking. How has, how has God instructed us to deal with our pastors? How has God instructed us to interact with authorities? And, and more important, why? Like, why is this true? Why are we to obey in these ways? Uh, these, are, these are good and necessary questions. And, and the passage that we're going to go through today deals with exactly that. If you have a Bible with you, please turn with me to 1 Timothy 5, starting in verse 17. We're going to read down through 1 Timothy 6.2, but we'll start in 1 Timothy 5.17. If you don't have a Bible, 
uh, with you. There should be uh, one near you, in front of you, in, a, uh, in the sea. It's black. The, the hymnal's blue. The Bible's black. Uh, 1 Timothy is near the, the back of the Bible. It's starting in chapter 5, verse 17. The Word of God says this. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit from their service are believers and beloved. This is the holy, sufficient, and inerrant word of our God. The main point that we're going to see from the passage this morning, the point that covers kind of this entire section, is this. God cares about how we interact with authorities in our lives, and true Christian obedience adorns the gospel and glorifies God. Right? God cares about how we interact with authorities in our lives, and true Christian obedience adorns the gospel, and it glorifies God. Uh, we see this idea this morning as we work through the verses. You'll, you'll see on the outline in front of you, we've got it kind of broken up into three sections, and, and three ways in which we are to interact with authorities. In, in verses 17 to 18, we are to respect elders. We, we honor the elders. Uh, verses 19 through 25, Paul tells us that we are to rebuke sin. We, we hold one another accountable. And finally, in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, we revere leaders. We, we heed our earthly authorities. Now, let's, let's begin to walk through this text together. We're going to start in uh, verse 17, uh, where Paul instructs us to respect elders. Uh, Paul, Paul begins this section by commenting on the responsibility of the local church to care for their pastors. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Uh, there, are, uh, there are instructions for us, the church, in how we are uh, to, to take care of our pastor, to, to pay our pastor. We cannot and we, we should not overreact to the greed that we see in our culture that we talked about moments ago. Um, 
we, the church, have a serious responsibility to provide for the physical needs of our pastor. God, God has given us that privilege. Before we get into some of the specifics here, uh, I want to I take a bit of a rabbit trail, and I think this is helpful and, and important to talk about. Uh, one of the things I appreciated uh, when, when we arrived eight years ago here at Crossway was the commitment to uh, expositional preaching. Uh, it isn't as if we never do a topical sermon. We do at times, but for the most part, the pastors here have had a commitment to preach straight through books of the Bible. Uh, we think it's important to preach the whole counsel of God, and, and he has given that to us in his word. One of the best ways that we can make sure that we do that is to let God set the preaching schedule. Uh, essentially, let his word speak for itself. Expositional preaching refers to this idea. We, we preach verse by verse as we walk through a book of the Bible, and, and that means that we don't get to skip difficult texts or, or awkward texts. We um, just go to the Word and then exposit it. We, we read it, we explain what it means, and then we apply it to our circumstance here. If you were here with us last week, you heard Doug preach about financially giving to the church and providing for those among us that are in need. Now, he did not do this because he wants you to get more money. He didn't do this because he thinks God is poor and needs it. Uh, he did this because he's preaching through 1 Timothy, and he got to 1 Timothy 5. It's as simple as that. This week, I'm going to talk about money again, which honestly is not a topic that we often talk about here at this church. Uh, but it's in the text so we're going we're gonna to talk about it, and, and we're going to do it unapologetically and, and hopefully biblically. Uh, if you're new with us, don't, don't mistake this topic as, as our goal and purpose here. We seek to glorify God in all that we do, and, and part of that is remaining faithful to his word um, as he delivered it to us, the, the awkward parts and all. And, and we're going to get a little awkward later, so uh, buckle up. Um, with that aside... Let's try to understand exactly what's meant here by double honor, right? Not a term super familiar with. Is that, is that a math equation? Is that, what, what am I to take from that? While it certainly hits on um, the general respect we have for pastors, uh, that is um, not all that it's about here. It's not all about the, the general respect, but it is about specifically taking care of his physical needs, paying your pastor for the work that he does. This is about financially providing for him. Uh, we know this in the text because of two indicators, two, two clear indicators we have here. First, the context of the passage, and second, the biblical references he uses in, verses eight, in verse 18. Uh, first, the context. Uh, verse 17 comes right on the heels of a long uh, portion of Scripture that Paul has um, been talking about financially providing for widows. If you were here last week, you heard this. This is 16 verses talking about how the church is responsible for providing for the needs of the widows that cannot provide for themselves. They're, they're elderly widows who, who find themselves unable to survive without outside intervention, and, and they are to be cared for by the church. Paul describes this in detail, like very specific ways in which this, these funds should be distributed. And then he immediately goes into this section talking about double honor uh, given to the pastors of the church. This, 
this is uh, telling, right? The often repeated phrase, context is king, uh, certainly helps us here. It, it's, it's helpful as you read your Bible to remember where it happens, what the immediate context is, and, and how that may speak into the meaning of this text. Uh, but more than just the context here, we have um, verse 18, which is, which is very helpful. Paul goes on to unpack the meaning of what he uh, is getting at uh, with double honor by, by pointing back to a couple of biblical references. So verse 18 first says, You shall not muzzle the ox as it treads out the grain. This is quoting Deuteronomy 25 verse 4, where the law instructs the owner of an ox to not prevent him from, from eating and benefiting from the grain that he is grinding out. Uh, the, the one doing the work should be uh, benefiting from the, the, the fruit of his labor. Uh, again, verse 18 then quotes Luke 10.7, where Jesus says, the laborer deserves his wages. Um, this is not talking about general respect for uh, pastors of the church, but providing financially for their needs, uh, for the work that they are doing here. Paul is giving clear instruction how the church is to provide for their pastors and why they should do it. They, they are to show them double honor because of the, of the work that they are doing. They are to provide generously for their pastors. They, they provide for them because they labor. Uh, some translations say because they toil in work and teaching, in, in preaching and teaching. This is a foundational principle. And honestly, this is a privilege for us, the church, to, to care for, to provide for the physical needs, the, the, the financial needs of, of God's under-shepherd here with us. So we look at this text, and the application should be pretty straightforward, right? Like, pay your pastor. That's, that's pretty clear. Um, this should be a no-brainer, but, but churches often step in it when we get here. Um, I've seen one church get accustomed to a pastor that refused to take a paycheck for his labors, even as he was shouldering most of the preaching burden, um, the church grew large enough to support multiple full-time pastors, yet uh, he refused to take on this responsibility full-time. Uh, I'm not going to speculate on motives here, but, but the unfortunate consequence is that he inadvertently was teaching the church that this is not something that they should, that they should do, that they should pay their pastor. Uh, they even held this as a badge of honor for years, and it took them a long time to recover from this unbiblical, this unhealthy mindset. This problem is something that's easy to point to uh, out there. But we should dig a, dip, a bit deeper in here and examine our motives. Are, are, are we embracing the instruction to compensate our pastor well? Is my attitude aligned with God's word here? Am I, am I generous and, and am I obedient in this way? Uh, I, do I desire to give abundantly to our pastor or, or do I want to take on the sinful mindset of keep him poor and keep him humble? This can be subtle and it can be hard to identify and, 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 sh and easy to shrug off, but, but I think it's a good thing for us to think through. Uh, let, me, let me chime in here with a bit of encouragement for Crossway. Um, I, uh, you, you and I have been um, involved in setting the church budget for several years now. And uh, I know from experience that this church is 
quick to be generous as they can, right? I know that we uh, are small, that we don't have a lot of resources, but I know that you desire to pay your pastor well, to take care of their physical needs, and I encourage you, keep going. Keep going. That is a good desire. That is a good thing. Do not grow weary in that, but, but seek to bless him all the more. Um, I said it was going to get awkward. We're going we're gonna to lean into the awkwardness a little bit together um, this morning. Think through what you are going to do with the budget this coming year. I know this will be a weird year as the church is being sold as we're looking at a new building. Uh, I know that it will likely require financial giving and a difficult balancing of funds to make everything work. However, I want to encourage you, as you work out the budget, be generous with your pastor. Uh, Doug faithfully gives to the church, both in his time and in his finances. He should not be the one to bear an unequal load in this transition. As the cost of living increases year after year, he is not immune to the financial pressures. I know him. I know that he would uh, easily try and shortchange himself in this for the good of the church. Don't let him do this. Do not let him do this. Take this out of his hands. Bear the burden of this transition together. and, And let us be generous to the financial needs of our pastor. I, I can drop that on you, and then I'm leaving for China. So I know, I know it's easy to say, and it's going to be harder to do, but, but care for him. Do this. God cares about how we interact with authorities in our lives, and, and true Christian obedience adorns the gospel, and it glorifies God. We interact well with authorities as we see first. We respect elders, and then verses 19 through 25 Uh, We interact well with authorities as we rebuke sin. As we rebuke sin. Let us read verses 19 through 25 again. I do, uh, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, even those that are, cannot remain hidden. All right, Paul begins verse 19 talking about our general posture toward our elders, toward our pastors, especially as we confront them in uh, egregious or public sin. Right? He says, do not admit a charge except when you have two or three witnesses. And as for those who persist in sin, who, who continue in unrepentant sin, you are uh, to rebuke them in the presence of all. Okay, so if, if, for, if the first part can be summed up as, as, as pay your pastor, the second part can be summed up as, as rebuke with integrity. Like rebuke sin with integrity. Uh, your pastors are not above sinning and, and, and certainly will make mistakes. Uh, they are not above being call, called out, uh, but they should not be wrongly slandered. 
Uh, these verses should then, in the best of cases, in the, if they're working properly, they should insulate um, him from wrongful accusations. This is important because this will happen. Now, God's, if God's worth, word is being faithfully preached week in and week out, there uh, will often, at one time or another, uh, be sto- toes stepped on. Right? All of us should feel that at one time or another. And um, if he is faithfully preaching the whole counsel of God, um, there are times when we will encounter scriptures that even offend us. Our human tendency is, is, is to lash out at the messenger. So, so false, uncooperated accusations against a pastor should be squashed. Um, this verse outlines the proper way, then, they should be confronted in their sin. Uh, this accords with the level of respect that God has for uh, has us, that, that we should have for this biblical office. Furthermore, as a congregational church, we should understand that, that holding our leaders to a biblical standard, a biblical moral standard, is our responsibility collectively. We should love our pastors enough and love God enough to hold our leaders accountable for their actions. The, the church reflects the goodness and the character of God to the world. And if the elders are caught up in unrepentant sin, they must be confronted. This, this text then provides us a, a, a framework on, on how to do this. Uh, it should not be a single voice of accusation, but, but a concern raised by multiple witnesses. Uh, in, in addition, the, the rebuke of unrepentant and, and egregious sin is public because God's name has been publicly slandered by these leaders. Just as we have discussed in, in previous sermons regarding church discipline, this is done both with an eye towards reconciliation, but also as a warning. Paul here says, in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. This is serious, right? This is serious. If, if someone is standing behind this pulpit, preaching the word of God and saying, this is what God is saying, it should be done by someone who is doing it with integrity. Back in July, Doug preached through 1 Timothy 3, and we saw that God has high standards for pastors. Their lives should reflect godly character. This should be assessed and affirmed before they assume such a large responsibility. Verse 22 doubles down on this concept, as Paul tells Timothy, to not be hasty in the laying on of hands. This is literally a reference to the ordination of pastors, to the setting aside of, of a man to a pastor a church. We, we don't do this quickly. We don't do this lightly or, or hastily. And we don't do this without enough time to be certain of their qualifications. It is our responsibility, church, to rebuke sin publicly, and our, our pastors are not above this. Be careful and be wise before appointing men to this role. Like, the fallout from a, a moral failure of a pastor is vast and wide-reaching. It affects lives. A bit of application from the text here goes beyond simply the, the public, um, publicly rebuking sin Look at this. I, I think the, the main point of this passage is that, yes, we publicly rebuke sin, but, but pull back another layer here. 
it is not our joy to publicly rebuke them, but is much to our sorrow. But that is not something we enjoy or look forward to. It is a heartbreaking uh, thing when a pastor fails. How much better for the church, for the sake of God's name in the community and for the gospel, is it if it is, this is not necessary? If pastors are not caught up in sinful snares, but rather are walking faithfully with God. I said last month that uh, this, and I want to I highlight it again today. Pray for your pastors. 1 Peter 5 is real. It says that Satan is like a prowling lion looking to devour. This is certainly true of God's under-shepherds. They are under spiritual attack, and, and they desperately need your support. They desperately need your prayer. Like, rebuke sin. Like, yes. But, but long before that, be on your knees by praying for them. Pray that this is not needed. Pray that they are kept from falling into temptation and, and indulging in sin. And pray that, that God guards their hearts and their minds, that they make wise decisions. As Jenny LeBeau would say, that they make good choices. Pray that they see the greater beauty of the sun, that they are protected from worldly temptation. Pray that they, they persevere with lives that, that honor and respect God, that, that adorn the gospel, that give credence to the word that they speak from this pulpit. We see the fallout of moral failure is, is awful, and we mourn as people are pushed away from God. Let us, let us be a church that, yes, holds that high biblical standard and, and that prays for and supports our pastors. Pray for Doug. Pray for Pastor Richard. Do your part in holding the rope as, as they are serving the church. Verse 23 is weird, um, right? It's this weird little parenthetical phrase here. So if you look down at it, it's talking about taking wine for medicinal purposes. And, and at first blush, this might seem out of place, but... I think if, as we read it in the context, we can, we can see what Paul is getting at here. In verse 22, right before that, he says, keep yourself pure. He tells Timothy to keep yourself pure. Then he, then he goes into this parenthetical phrase about, about wine, and then he talks about sins done in secret will be exposed, and, and good works done in secret will be exposed. And, and we kind of put that together. I think he's encouraging Timothy as a pastor to keep his integrity. He should, he should be pure, walking according to the word, and if he does this, his good works will come to light. If he, if he does not do this, his sin will come to light. His unrighteousness will be revealed. Um, as for drinking wine here, it is likely a response to the pressure of those practicing asceticism that we talked about in chapter 4. Um, there, Paul clearly rebukes false teachers for requiring uh, legalistic self-denial, restricting people from God's good gifts as, as if that somehow makes them right with God. Uh, here, even as Paul encourages him to remain pure, he encourages him to take care of his health regardless of what others might think in their twisted theology. He, he encourages him to do this with integrity and, and, and to not indulge himself in, in sinning and drunkenness, but, but wisely taking care of himself. He doesn't need to uh, impress those who would hold him to an unbiblical standard, never drinking wine, but rather he acts in integrity before God. 
the last two verses remind him that God is our ultimate judge. And, and we, uh, even as we cannot know all, uh, all the things that men do, either for good or for evil, God ultimately does know, and, and he will judge. It is good for us to remember this and, and to cling to this. There will be injustices, and, and even as we rightly rebuke sin, um, as it occurs in a th- uh, with the pastors that are over us, we remember that God is, is over all. Nothing is beyond the gaze or the view of God. Interact well with your pastors. Hold them accountable and trust that God is over all of this. All right, God cares about how we interact with authorities in our lives and true Christian obedience adorns the gospel and glorifies God. We interact well with authorities as we respect elders as we rebuke sin, and finally, as we revere leaders. Let's look again at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Okay, I think it's it's wise and incumbent to to say a few things here about this section in its context. Uh, The Bible deals with slavery, and and we tread lightly here, um, lest we make the Bible say something that it does not say. Uh, I want to I remind us of, of four things as we look through this regarding slavery and, and how it's handled in Scripture. Um, first of all, not all slavery is the same. Right? It would be easy, uh, and honestly, it would be um, intellectually lazy to lump Hebrew servitude, Roman slavery, indentured servants, and, and the African slave trade all together as if it's all the same. Uh, they're not. Uh, in the ancient world, much of what was called slavery, looked like more of an indebted servant, uh, an employee working for an employer either to, to pay off a debt or to stay out of poverty. Uh, that's not to say that it was okay or, there were, or, there, or, or that they were always treated rightly or, or there was not abuse. Like, clearly there was and clearly that is wrong. Um, but as we hear the word slavery, our, our American mindset recalls the horror of African slave trade and uh, that, that stains our country's history, and, and, and this is not that. However, secondly, the, the ownership of another human being is not good. It is sinful. It undermines the message of, of the Bible, and, and, and we see in Genesis God declaring the pinnacle of his creation, that mankind, that, that they're good. We are made in his image, and we we defile image bearers as we treat them as if they're property. This is across the board, whether it's uh, present day or First Timothy 6 time. Uh, third, as one of the commentators said, specific situations in a sinful world warrant specific instructions to a sinful world. So, so slavery was a reality here in the church and uh, in, in the culture, and, and Paul is not addressing the institution of slavery, rather he is addressing Christians that are facing this reality. How, how should they interact? Those who are under the yoke of a bondservant, uh, they are encouraged and, and instructed here, and that is the aim of these two verses. And finally, um, we note that biblical instructions on how to deal with the reality of slavery does not condone uh, slavery itself. 
So even as Paul uh, is speaking to those that are caught up into this snare, um, he does not promote or endorse the institution of slavery itself. So, so texts like these have been used and misused and abused in history um, to justify sinful people's own agendas, and, and we need to be careful to guard against that error. With that said, the best way for us to, to understand and apply these verses in our context, uh, I think, is in the context of an employer and employee relationship. Uh, with that in mind, let us consider our interactions with our employer. Paul instructs us to regard our master as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. And he goes on to say that those with believing masters should serve them with all the more zeal for, for they see that their efforts benefit their brothers. Does this describe our attitude as we work? Do you serve in humility and, and with great effort, knowing that the way that you behave impacts uh, how the world sees Jesus through you? Have you considered that your attitude and, and that your work ethic um, have you considered how uh, your employer uh, can either see you adorning the gospel or undermining the name of God and the teaching of the church? It matters how we interact with our authorities. God sees, God cares. Consider for a moment two employees. One of them is, is diligent and on time and, and comes to work ready to contribute. She does not grumble. Uh, even when given hard tasks, she, she doesn't stab her coworkers in the back and um, she gives herself to the work and is generally recognized as a good quality employee. Uh, the other employee is prone to cut corners, shows up late, and generally has a cynical or divisive attitude. Uh, she is not eager to join in the work, but rather looks for ways to cut corners and slough off. She is quick to point out flaws in others, and she does not take instruction well. And both are professing to be Christian. One adorns the gospel. One undermines the message she claims to believe. Right? A good tree produces good fruit. Brothers and sisters, like, as Christians, we should be exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit in all areas of our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control is not excluded from our lives as we walk through the turnstile at work. It runs the gamut. It runs through every aspect, every interaction that we have. We should be producing fruit as Christians. Recognize that as you go to work, you are not merely going there to support yourself and your family, but uh, Paul reminds us in Colossians 3, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance at your reward. Christian, let this be you. There have been a lot of imperatives in the message today, a lot, of, a lot of instructions, a lot of things that you are to do. When we focus on a passage like this, it can feel like that, right? It can feel like all work and, and no grace. And to some degree, as we look at it, we, 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 we say what's there that's right and good. We want to open the Word of God and see what it instructs us to do. We should expect this. We should not resent this. However, when we, when we see instructions like this, much like my young child, you should be asking the question, why? Why should I do this? Why, why should I compensate my pastor well? He only works one day a week. <laughs> Which is not, and not even today. 
That's not true, by the way. Why should I care about rebuking sin? Someone else. Why should I revere authorities and work hard? Is it just so I can be a better person? Is it make me closer to God when I do these things? Why should I do this when I, I can't even possibly be perfect in doing this, right? This is, this is, this is a high standard. I can't, I can't do this all the time. Those questions are only answered when you consider the rest of the, the context of this letter and even the Bible as a whole. This letter was intended to be read in its entirety and, and Paul built an argument on the gospel of Jesus and we see it worked out here in 1 Timothy 5. If you've got your Bible, turn, turn back to chapter 1 with me, just a few pages over. Turn back to chapter 1, we're going we're to see why. Chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Paul says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul gives us the reason. Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, very God of very God, came into this world to save sinners. That included Paul, that included Peter, that included Mary, that included you, that included me. Jesus did this freely, out of his own good pleasure. He gave generously. Jesus provided for us. He lived a perfect life, a perfect sinless life that we cannot live. Jesus generously gave to us. Jesus perfectly obeyed God's commands and and pleased the Father in all things. He lived this righteous life and, and died in atoning death on the cross It was on the cross that the Holy Lamb of God took upon himself the sin of mankind as he absorbed the wrath of God. He took your place. He literally took hell for you if you would repent of your sin and trust in Christ with all of your your life. Like Place all of your eggs in that basket. This, This transaction, God giving you his righteousness and him taking our sin is the foundation for all that we're called to do. Jesus on the cross dealt with sin publicly. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave and and instituted the new covenant with his people. Through this, he has given a a new heart. He has, what the Bible says, given you a heart of flesh, replacing your heart of stone. A heart of flesh that wants to serve him and to please him. Jesus empowers you to work hard, to adorn the gospel message. And this is because Jesus worked hard for you. Paul can instruct us on how to live in 1 Timothy 1, uh, in 1 Timothy 5, because of the heart change that we experience in 1 Timothy 1. If this, if this describes you this morning, praise God. Bow to him. Live in obedience to what he says here today. If, if you're unsure that this describes you, Come see me or any of the church members near, near you, and, and we would love to talk about this with you today. God has called his people to repent of sin, 
to turn away from their sin and to trust him as their Lord and as their master and cling to him by faith in all of their being. He is a good God. He can be trusted. And, and we, we serve him out of, out of the overflow of this new heart that he has given to us. God cares about how we interact with authorities in our lives and, and true Christian obedience adorns the gospel and it glorifies God. In this short passage, Paul instructs us to respect our elders, uh, giving generously and providing for their hard work in the pastorate. Uh, He instructs us to rebuke sin, dealing publicly with grievous sin. And he instructs us to work hard with Christ-like attitudes and reflect his character. And we do all of this in response to what he has done for us. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for who you are and for what you have done. You are a good God who has made all things. Lord, help us to see what you would have for us in your word. Help us to give with generous hearts and support your work here at Crossway. Help us to live holy lives and encourage one another. Help us in our work to adorn the good news that we proclaim. In all of this, Lord, we rely on your spirit in us and praise you for your glorious grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.